Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the gospel according to St. Luke. Uh, This is the resurrection story as accounted in this gospel. Let's share in God's good word together. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Everyone was welcome in his kingdom. He said things like the poor are welcome, the lame are welcome. But when he started, To challenge the powers that be. When he called them hypocrites and they, he struggled. They cut him down. They just cut him down. Now I would remind you. That at Ash Wednesday we planted this little bulb. We watered it. We changed the water. We put little lamps over it. We wanted it to grow. Didn't do anything wrong. Jesus was just cut down. Love lays down its life. And God raises it back up. That's our story. There's roughly 40 hours from The crucifixion, 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, and then there's a whole other day of the Sabbath that they can't do anything. And then the next morning, some 40 hours later, they come to the tomb. And what they find is that love is alive. Will you say that with me? Love is alive. That's what we celebrate at Easter, that's what we celebrate tonight. If you take your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out now as we follow along. And we look at the Easter story as told by the Gospel of Luke. As a context, we have Friday, and Jesus is crucified, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and then he dies. And everybody saw it. Mary saw it, Mary Magdalene saw it, John saw it, Rome saw it. They all saw what happened. He was cut down. And that was it. And they were afraid. Now the only ones that didn't see it were the ones who had already denied him or betrayed him and ran off in fear of the Jews. And they were afraid. You see, the Jewish Sabbath starts on Friday night at sundown. That's your blank there. It starts at sundown and they can't do anything at all until Sunday morning at daybreak. Sabbath is sundown to sundown, Friday night to Saturday night. And they're concerned Because they've come to do the right thing for Jesus. He's been through so much. And they love him so much. They want to take good care of his body. And they can't do it. Without violating their own law. You see one of the main worries in Jesus day. Was about one's burial. People then. People now are concerned about what happens after I die. And certainly in Jesus day. If you were poor. uh, Which is still true in lots of places in the world today. You, you don't want your body simply laying out in a field and having the animals get you. Having you know, to decompose just out you know, uh, in the elements. 
It just, it just was horrible to think about that you would be dead and then whatever happens to your carcass just does or you're going to get thrown uh, in a fire with a lot of other bodies. It's just horrific. Now, those of our culture, I mean, we don't, we don't really think about that much at all. I mean, we call the funeral home and they take care of it. We show up three days later and it's all pretty nice. That wasn't the way it was in Jesus' day. They were very concerned about what happened to them after they died and particularly because um, it was so rocky. You couldn't simply bury people uh, in that part of the country, you still can't. And so if you were to go to the Mount of Olives today, it looks something like this with thousands and thousands and thousands of graves outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Uh, if you're going to come a little closer, you can see that some of them are pretty basic put rocks put together, uh, but others are a little more ornate. And some even have little openings for presents and writings on them and scriptures and very holy and sacred places. And people wanted to know exactly what was going to happen when they died. Where were they going to be buried? By whom? In what location? Uh, and, and how would we even know it was a part of our family? How do you do that um, if you don't, you know, Place them in the ground. You had to have certain kinds of grave markers. So in Jesus' day, and it was a very short-lived practice, but in Jesus' day, the Jewish burial custom included many burials. Actually, there was a primary burial and a burial cave, uh, which is where Jesus is placed by the Scriptures, but it's then followed by a second burial and an ossuary and a smaller niche outside the Jerusalem walls. And these were easier to do. You would simply scrape them out by hand. This is limestone, and so you could actually do this. And so uh, what happens is this would be where the primary burial would happen. Uh, You can see the stone rolled back there. That was pretty normative. But when you got in, uh, this area, number six, if you will, uh, you can see that there on the left. That's where you would weep, and you would prepare the body. And then once you prepare the body, this is where people, you could probably fit four, five, six people in here. And then there's this tiny little place where you can kind of slide the body once it's prepared back here in area four or down here in area four. There's a tiny window right here that to, so that you could see in and see uh, what was going on. And, and huge stones here and here to protect the bodies here and here. This was sort of preparation area and where people came in to weep. And, and you can go, even go in there even today. But then once the bodies had decomposed over, say, a year or two or more, You would go back in because you would need to use these burial uh, caves more than once. And you could see they were were used for multiple people. So you would go in and all that would be left then was bone. If you prepared them correctly, there was very little of you left. And so these are ossuary boxes. We saw these on the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem. They would make these inscriptions on them so you knew what family went with what family. And you would take the remaining bones and you would place them in these boxes. Uh, after you did that, you'd have a little lid that you put it in. And then the, the place that, for their final resting place is actually very small and you just slide them in. Uh, and so it didn't take, was, didn't take much room uh, for an overpopulated area. Uh, and so right outside, we walked right by three little ossuary niches um, on the very first day that we were in Jerusalem. Looks like this. And that's what they were preparing Jesus to do. Uh, that's sort of common knowledge. Uh, some people even believe they actually found the ossuary box of James, of St. James. They think they can date it all the way back to him. And so, for whatever reason, ossuary boxes wasn't a common practice before the second temple period of Jesus, and it wasn't a a common practice afterwards. But during Jesus' day, this is the way they did it. And so, Joseph of Arimathea, he goes to Pilate, the Roman prefect, and he asks for the body to go through this um, scenario. 
And so then he took it, meaning Jesus' body, he takes it down, he wraps it in a linen cloth, and he lays it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid, in that larger tomb area. And it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now, again, these ladies would have been worn slick because Galilee is not close Galilee is all the way up here. You see Galilee up here? There's the Sea of Galilee here. And you come all the way down here. There is a mountain pass through here. Uh, around Jericho would be here. And you have to go through the mountains to get to Jerusalem. So they've gone 80 to 90 miles. And they've brought these spices and ointments. And they've done all of this to take care of Jesus. To try to prepare him for burial. To do the right thing for him and for his family. For Mary and for John and for the rest of his family, for the rest of those who loved him. And so they try to do this. So on the first day of the week, uh, Sunday, at early dawn, as soon as they can, some 40 hours after the crucifixion, they come to the tomb, and they take the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, that sort of number six area, they didn't find the body. That's what they were expecting. So they get there, and, and the tomb is open, and then that's, that's interesting because that would be very, very difficult to do. The, the stone would weigh thousands of pounds, and it would be set in one of the slit that looks like this. This is actually at the garden tomb in Jerusalem where they believe Jesus was buried. Uh, this is one of two places uh, that scholars believe that Jesus was buried. You can go there even today. Chantel and I were there in April. And so you would put the, the stone up, and it would simply slide down in that groove and close the seal. And so the ladies come in here and they expect to see Jesus either here where they were going to continue to prepare him or right here at his final resting place. That's what they expected, but he wasn't there. Uh, I went on in the tomb, as, as did Chantel, and you can see it's a pretty tiny space. There's the, the wall between the two rooms, six and four, and here is the sign of the early church that Jesus is alive, that that was where Jesus was laid. If you were to actually take a photo of it, um, you can see that this is where they would lay the body. It's, it's sort of separated from the rest of the area, uh, a place at one end and a place at the other end. And of course, still, it's not very tall. And this is, this is what Jesus, uh, where he would have been. And so while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. And the women were terrified, and they bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do you look for the living among the dead? They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. He is not here, but has risen. Will you say that with me? He is not here, but has risen. Now, for Christians, for centuries, this has been our clarion call. One Christian would say, he is risen. And the other people would say, he is risen indeed. Let's try that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But here's the problem. That brought no comfort to Mary. The empty tomb didn't mean anything to them on that day. It means all the world to us now because we know the rest of the story, but for them, nothing. Except confusion and concern and bewilderment. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all. The rest. You see, when the women came to the tomb, they found nothing. What they expected to find, what they expected to work on, was this. Still cut down. Not in good shape. 
Largely dead. That's what they expected. That's what they wanted. They wanted to do something to redeem what was left of his body. Having been beaten and flogged and insulted and just the worst the world had to offer. This is what they expected. And they got nothing. And they were confused and concerned. We look at it and say, hallelujah, he's risen. They looked at it and said, oh no, what's happened? Where's my Lord? Now, on the same day, the two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. We are shifting stories now. This is the first story around um, the tomb. But now, the story shifts between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And, and of course, it's great in a car, not if you're walking it. And they're walking those seven miles, and they're talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, I love the way Frederick Beekner puts it. He says, Emmaus. Uh, many of us know Emmaus. You know when you've just had enough, you can't take another thing. And so, uh, for us around here, uh, Emmaus is the lake. It's where you go when you can't take any more of this. You go there. So, Frederick Beekner says this. Emmaus is the place where we go in order to escape. That's your blank there. To escape a bar, a movie, wherever it is that we throw our hands up. Emmaus may be buying a new suit or a new car or smoking more cigarettes than you really want to. Don't smoke. Or, or reading a second-rate novel, he writes. Emmaus may be going to church on Sunday. Emmaus is whatever we do, wherever we go, to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred. That even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die. Ideas about love and freedom and justice have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish men for selfish ends. Emmaus was the place of escape. Jerusalem was where things happened. The political powers that be, Rome and the Jewish leaders, that was where it was at and Emmaus was outside. Just like New York City is the place and the Hamptons are the place of, you know, that kind of a deal. So here's Jerusalem down here at the bottom right. You see that? And they began to walk. And they're walking along. This would take you seven hours and 46 minutes, according to this app, if you were to make it all the way up to Emmaus. So that's what they're doing. And so the story goes like this. While they were talking and discussing, this is Sunday afternoon, friends. Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus was right there, as close to them, walking along with them, but they didn't see him. Because they weren't really looking for him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? Now this is interesting to me. I think Jesus is kind of ornery. It's like he's fully alive. He's like, so guys, what you talking about? And they, still, they, they stood still and they looked sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, he answered and he said, really? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And so Jesus asked them, I love this, what things? It's Jesus. He knows what's going on. He just wants to see what they're going to say. And so they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. You can almost feel Jesus going, yeah, that's right. Uh, Who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, Some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning when they did not find his body there. They came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Nope. 
Nothing. Nothing there. And they didn't know what to do with it either. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself. Oh, that is awesome. He's like, they don't know it's him. And he's like, let me tell you about me. You, you want to know about Jesus? I know a little thing about Jesus. This is awesome. And he t- takes them all the way through the scriptures. And as they came near the village, seven miles away, seven hours later to which they were going, Jesus walks on ahead of them as if he's going on. And they say, whoa, 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 stay with us. Stay with us because it's almost evening. The day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he did what he always did. He took the bread. He thanks God. He blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to them. That's all it took. That's all it took. You know when you're close enough to people where you, you can recognize their mannerisms. You just know who they are just because it's authentic to who they are. They saw him in the breaking of the bread. And how beautiful that he was. You see, friends, he had been with them the whole trip. He had been with them all along. And they expected to see him cut down. And he was right there all along. All along he was with them. They just didn't see him. They didn't expect him there. He had been raised. It was a new body. A new day. New power. Waiting for them. I grew that one too. I've been waiting to show it for you. I had to slow it down a little bit. I'm like, no, you're next week. Hold on. New, different, power, resurrected. They didn't see it coming. Isn't that how it is with Jesus? We're like, oh, Jesus, I'm doing my Sunday school lesson. Nothing. Oh, Jesus, I'm saying my prayers. I'm going to church. I'm doing my thing. Nothing. And then you're driving to, you know, Missouri And your kid starts talking to you in the back. You're like, wow, that was Jesus. Never saw it coming. The Lord comes to you right when you need him from the most unexpected ways. Jesus is alive. Then their eyes were opened, it says, and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now that's just mean. Right? He was with them the whole time. They're like, Jesus. He's like, see you, poof. And gone, gone. Boom. And isn't that how it is with Jesus? That as soon as we think, oh, this is how you see Jesus, sing that song. So you gather everybody around, you sing the song? No, Jesus. But he did it last time. You know, last time Ray sang that song, Jesus was here. Right? Get Ray to sing that song. Because I like to hear Ray sing that song. And oftentimes Jesus is around. But you can't prescribe it. Right? We're not doing witchcraft. We're not doing incantation. We're not saying the right things and poof, Jesus shows up. It's not like that. Jesus shows up when he wants to. Make no mistake, friends. You can't go and find Jesus, but he can find you. He's all around you all the time, and he will only reveal himself when it's best for you. So he does, like the people at Emmaus. That same hour, they got up and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. And they were saying, the Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. They don't use the name Peter, which is a slight. 
Then they told what had happened on the road and how it had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Oh, now that's, that's good. You understand this? That now Jesus is in front of all the disciples. They're in a room where they locked the doors so that they could be safe. And Jesus shows up and the first thing he says is, Peace be with you. Any of you all ever gotten a, like a, an invitation to a really good party uh, and you knew you should go, but you just didn't want to go? Your relationship wasn't quite right, so you just didn't go. And then like three weeks later, four weeks later, five weeks later, you're on aisle three of Walmart and like your cart turns and their cart turns and you look up and you're like, oh no. Like I never said I wasn't coming. I should have been there. I'm going to aisle eight. Like, pfft, you know, that kind of a deal. That's... Now think about this. Think about your master you've been with for three years and you blank him at the crucifixion. And now you're not at Walmart. He's in your room. Poof. How do you think they felt about that? So of course Jesus is going to say, hey guys, peace. It's all right. Because they're about to stroke out. Like Jesus is here. I think he's going to kill me. You know, Jesus, right? I mean, think how terrifying this would be. Jesus shows up and they thought they were seeing a ghost. Of course they did. And he said to them, why are you frightened? He knew very well why they were frightened. They were scared to death. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet and see that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as he that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, Jesus said to them, hey, it's been 40 hours. Got anything to eat? I love how mundane Jesus is. The everydayness of Jesus. That's how he comes. He's like, I'm hungry. So they gave him a fish, a piece of fish to eat. And he ate it in their presence. And it didn't drop through his body. Right? Because if he was a ghost, they were like, well, see, apparitions can't eat. Jesus had a new body. A new body. Amazing. So you understand that Jesus was in Emmaus. And then Jesus was in the room. Now, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus was also at the place of the skull. Now, this is why they call it the place of the skull. Can you see the skull? Can you see it? See those spooky eyes? The nose, the mouth? This is the place of the skull. If you go there today, it's a bus station all around here. You can't really see it anymore. But that's the way it looked. So they built a garden around it. And that's where the tombs were. They would take them off the cross and they would place them in the tombs. They'd try to keep it as close as possible. If you go there today, um, you can see the little window there, the, the main entrance to where you'd go into that weeping area, and then the bodies would be back over to the side. This is where Mary is, according to the Gospel of John. So early on the first day of the week, still Sunday, while it's still dark before dawn, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. She sees that the stone's been removed from the tomb. Right? And she's not happy about it. She weeps. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she bent over and she looked into the tomb. Now, again, um, if you're going to stoop into the tomb, Chantel and I, you know, there, you've got you to look in. And, and you can do that, and you would see where you would have been preparing him, uh, but you wouldn't be able to see his final resting place from there. And so she, she goes in, and she stoops in, and she looks, and she sees two angels in white, one sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. Now, I would remind you, um, in this scenario that this would have been a place i mean it's clearly marked where the head is and where the feet would be and and that's where you'd lay the body and this is what she sees according to the gospel of john um, 
It's very similar to the Gospel of Luke with just this uh, little difference. Now, if you were to go to where uh, the early church says that uh, Jesus was prepared for burial, uh, it's a, a little bit across town at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and this is the very stone that they believe Jesus would have been prepared for burial on, where they would have left him, where, where he would have been raised from. And, and I can tell you, it's a very holy site. Both of these places were very weighty on our spirits as we went there. Unlike any other place, we went through all of Jerusalem or all of Israel. When we were there, you could feel the holiness and the sacredness of these places. And you can see how they would have been on one end and the other end, and, and both of these are raised up from the floor. So you're not just out on the dirt. You're raised up, and you can see how the angels would have been at either end. And the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And so she comes out of the tomb. And again, you'd kind of have to duck out of the tomb. I think this lady's name is Mary, but it's not that Mary. I just took that photo in April. But you can see how you kind of duck out. And when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. Did she know it was Jesus? No. Do you see the pattern? That with the resurrected Christ, he knows what he's doing, even though others don't know what they're doing. And this is a clue, friends. That was true on the Via Dolorosa as well. We can never think of Jesus as a victim. He is not a victim. He chooses the cross. He chooses the way of suffering. He chooses not to say who he is to Pilate. He chooses not to say who he is to Caiaphas. He chooses not to redeem himself from Annas. He chooses, again, as he comes up to Pilate, not to take Rome by force. All of these things he could have done, and he chooses the cross for you and for me and for all the world. He knows what he's doing, friends. It didn't happen to him. Jesus chose it. And in these next scriptures, we find that Jesus knew every piece of it all the way so that he could redeem the world. This is Jesus' plan. God's plan lived out through Jesus, perfectly and obediently. And so, again, Jesus is calling the shots. Nobody else knows what's going on, but he does. Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to Jesus, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. That would be some feat. And Jesus says to her, Mary. Mary, he calls her by name. He calls you by name. This is who Jesus is. He waits until that moment where you need him most and he calls you by name. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through. Friends, you don't have to go out and search and find Jesus. You don't have to climb a mountain and hope that he might be there. He knows your address. He's come to you. That's the great news of Easter. Because he's raised, because he has a new body, he's right with you wherever he needs to be. In Emmaus, in Jerusalem, in the closed room, or at the garden with Mary. And she goes to the disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Then the disciples rejoiced and when they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So then they go on to Jerusalem. Now notice this. Again, isn't it beautiful? She thinks Jesus is the gardener, and Jesus says, no, it's me, Mary. I'm with you. And by the way, guys, I'm going to be in your meeting too. I'm coming. And again, he says, peace be with you. Both Gospels. Why does he say this? Because we need that. 
because there's a part of us that the risen Lord scares us to death because we know that he knows everything about us. What we forget is how good he is. We forget his character. We forget his love. We forget that he chose the cross that we might live. And he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, the very power of God, so that this love that Jesus has now lives in the disciples and now lives in you and in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. That the church is to be the representation of the alive, risen Jesus in the world. And this is how the Gospels portray it. But you know the earliest writings about our Lord? They come from Paul. Paul writes the earliest account of the resurrection as an eyewitness account. When Paul writes to the early church in Corinth, as they're trying to struggle and know who this Jesus is, if Jesus would have been alive at that moment, he would have only been about 55 years of age. Most of the people who followed Jesus were still alive when Paul wrote this letter to Corinth. And so Paul writes this to the church and to us. He says, For I handed on to you of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, accordance with the Scriptures, with that he appeared to Cephas, again Peter, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. So now you understand this. Jesus raised new body at Emmaus in Jerusalem in the room at the other room in the garden in front of 500 people at once. This isn't a guy who was resuscitated. You can't make those treks. Something new and different that the world had never seen is going on right around them. And they're trying to grasp it. Then he appeared to James and to all the other apostles. And then Paul says this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And it changed everything for Paul. It used to be Saul, the risen Christ, comes and his very presence blinds Saul. He becomes Paul. And from his persecution of the early church, he flips and then begins to plant churches all around the globe. Thessalonica, Galatia, Ephesus. You pick it. Philippi. Rome. See, what Paul is witness to, what Mary is witness to, what the disciples are witness to, what you are witness to tonight is that love is alive. Will you say that with me? Love is alive. Love is alive. It was alive in them, alive in Jesus, alive in his choices, and alive in us tonight. Alive in us tonight. So our action step, friends, for all of us is that love does. Love's not just hanging out that love does. Love pursues blindly, unflinchingly, and without end. When you go after something you love, as Jesus did, you'll do anything it takes to get it, even if it costs everything. That's what love does. You see, love does things. It doesn't just hang out and wait. Alive love, this love hugs and prays and cries and sings and stays up all night. Stays up all night to talk with a friend that needs that. Or to comfort a newborn. Love does. Do you get it? That's what love does. It's not a passive. It's not a thought. It's not a belief. It's something you do. And so now it's our turn. Love does. This is our last sermon of the Love Does series. And it means that we take this love, that it is alive, and we go out. 
Because in the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about something or planning for something. Simply put, love does. Love does. And I think the Christians for more than 2,000 years now understand this. Particularly those that live around Jerusalem. As you exit this beautiful garden where Jesus is laid, there's a sign. Uh, And as, as you walk up on the sign, you can read that it says this. Because he lives... Everything's different because Jesus says, because love is alive, it's all different. Will you read this with me? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. As we love God and that love lives, the world is transformed. Let us all move tonight from the garden and let that love live in us. Amen. Amen.